I want to speak to you this morning on just what you might gather from these first couple verses on the gospel of comfort. It's no secret, I think, that the Apostle Paul, uh, the one who is responsible for much of the New Testament that you have in front of you, lived a very hard life. (laughs) He was an individual, a man, whose life was filled with suffering. Filled, as he says here, with a life that was pressed out of measure. I get the picture in my mind's eye of almost his life was in a vice grip that was being uh, extendingly and persistently uh, pressed upon him. That from both sides he was being squeezed and his life was being squeezed out of him, so to speak. And I think that's really the picture that he has. That actually the picture that comes about throughout this uh, second letter to the Corinthian church. This idea, though, that Paul was a sufferer is actually true both before and after he was redeemed by Jesus. Before he was redeemed by Jesus, he was sort of the instigator, the initiator of that suffering. As we are told throughout the book of Acts, and even in Paul's sort of self-testimonies in some of his epistles, he was known as one who was wreaking havoc on the church of God. He was going and uh, bringing many who claimed Jesus as Lord and either torturing and persecuting or even executing them. This was the Apostle Paul. He was an instigator of suffering. And after Jesus met him on that Damascus road, we know that he was suffering for the sake of Christ. Not to get rid of Christ's name, but now to further Christ's name. He was able to suffer for Christ's glory. And in fact, if you read, if you just jump ahead a little bit, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, these very familiar verses, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, he says that very thing. He makes that bold declaration that he was now happy and glad that he could glory in his sufferings for the sake of Christ's glory, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, says Paul, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is something that Paul came to learn through the course of his life. That through suffering, Christ could be glorified. That through suffering, many, yes, still could be comforted. Many, of course, didn't share this sentiment. Many, of course, still don't share this sentiment today. (laughs) But they didn't even share it in, in, in Paul's day. And such is why this letter exists. Just to give you a little background... 2 Corinthians, I think, is the perfect example uh, to sort of represent Paul's very strange relationship with the church of Corinth. He loved this church immensely. Uh, We know this, of course, because he planted this church. He was the sort of the founding pastor of the church at Corinth, Corinth. But he also pulled no punches, so to speak, when it came to correcting them very severely and very harshly. He gave them sound words that often sounded uh, very corrective. And uh, both of these points are very evident, of course, if you read 1 Corinthians. Uh, You read that he's very uh, strongly wanting to correct something that's within the church that needs to be out of the church. (laughs) But I think this comes comes to bear, and it's all the more evident in this second letter. 
Because it's a letter that's comprised, if you read through it, it varies in tone, it varies in topic, it varies uh, sort of, it doesn't seem to have the same sort of logical thought structure as most of Paul's other letters, where it's very sort of almost lawyer-like in how he's deciphering a problem. Here it's almost just a flow of thought, a stream of consciousness, so to speak, poured out in this letter. And that consciousness is filled with deep affection, but also very strong admonition to this church. You see, this letter comes about because Paul hears a report from Titus about the goings-on at the church at Corinth. Let me back up a little bit. So Paul establishes the church of Corinth. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. He spends almost 18 months with them, establishing the church, uh, teaching them his doctrine, sort of uh, indoctrinating them in the gospel in the ways of Jesus Christ. Not soon thereafter, the church is barraged with great scandal and strife, which of course precipitates 1 Corinthians. It's a corrective letter. It's a, a, corrector to rem, a letter to remind them of what the apostles' doctrine is and how the church should function and how they ought to conduct themselves. Now, at the end of 1 Corinthians, if you go there, uh, chapter 16, he dispatches Timothy to sort of serve in his stead. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 10 says, Now if Timotheus or Timothy come, see that he may be with you without fear. For he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. He is there saying that he's going to serve in my stead. And why is that? Because Paul here says it's my intention to come visit you. Notice verse 5 of the same chapter. And I will come to you when I shall pass through Macedonia. For I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, in winter with you. That ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permit. So he is expressing this intention. I want to come and visit with you again. I want to have a, a second benefit. It's actually what he calls it in Second Corinthians. I want to have a second prolonged visit with you. But in my stead for the time being. Accept Timothy as sort of my substitute so to speak. Timothy though. He goes to Corinth and he finds this church in much greater turmoil and disarray than first expected. You see, those who were opposed to Paul's doctrine, who were opposed to the gospel, who wanted to not relinquish their position, not relinquish their sin, were holding all the more tightly to their way of life. So then Paul determines to... Uh, sort of move ahead, hasten his visit to this church to sort of solve the crisis himself. So he, he there expresses he's going to wait a while, he's going to do some more traveling, and then come to Corinth, and he hears about this incredible trouble that's going on in Corinth, and so he actually hastens his visit, but then things don't go well. Paul goes, and the church is even more open and flagrant with their rebellion than actually previously reported, so to speak. And the gospel is rejected. And he quickly has to depart. So this is what he hints at at the end of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. That instead of a prolonged visit, actually he just has to write a letter instead. Notice verse 23 of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. He says, moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you, I came not as yet to Corinth. 
Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith ye stand. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For I make you sorry. Who is he that, then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow. From them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Here you can see what he's writing, he's expressing. He's saying that I came to you, but I came in much heaviness because of the state of affairs that I found you in. That you had rejected the gospel, that you were still living in your sin. And so as to spare you, perhaps the Apostle Paul wanted to spare himself in the way he would respond to this church. (laughs) That's sort of what I read into it. Here he says, I wrote a letter, as he says, out of much anguish of heart. A tear-filled letter urging them to, dis, to, to repent. A, a tear-filled letter that was urging them to re, disregard and to re, re, respond to that, uh, that open unrepentance that was so flagrant in their lives. This letter is sadly lost to history. And here, a little historical note. The two Corinthian letters that we have in the scriptures are actually two of four. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he hints at a previous letter that he had written to them. And then we have 1 Corinthians. And then we have the tear-filled letter that he mentions here. And then we have 2 Corinthians. So we have four, perhaps, historical letters, two of which we have in the Bible and two of which we uh, have lost to history. And here he's saying that I love you all with a love that is more abundant than you know. You can hear Paul's heart. You can hear the sadness in his voice as he's striving for them to see and to repent to the ways of Christ. Eventually, though, he makes it to Macedonia. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he makes it there. And there he meets Titus. As he says there, verse 6, who gives him a report. Nevertheless, God, verse 6 of chapter 7, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a reason. Or, excuse me, but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly matter, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. You can see here what he's saying, that he receives this report from Titus, who comes back after that very uh, sort of anguishing letter that he wrote to them. A great work of God moved among them, and he says that they were, as reported by Titus, that they, he found much consolation and comfort in them, because they were made sorry, as he says, unto repentance. So things... Seemed to be uh, going well, but not, of course, all was well. Such is why we have 2 Corinthians. 
Because there were still some, even in the midst of this great movement of God, this great movement of the Holy Spirit to bring souls to repentance, to bring them back to where they ought to be in the grace and truth of the Father. There were still some who were now questioning Paul's authority. And here, that's why 2 Corinthians is that sort of stream of consciousness sort of letter. Because Paul's reputation and testimony was being disparaged by these who were still in Corinth. Saying that he wasn't one to be trusted. He wasn't authoritative precisely because of two things that he talks about everywhere in this letter. His physical absence and his physical suffering. Absence and suffering. Because he wasn't with them. And because of the great turmoil that he was enduring. Some were saying that he couldn't be trusted. That those things invalidated his authority. You know because he had said he was going to come and have a prolonged visit with them. 1 Corinthians 16. But great things happened in the midst of that. These who rejected Paul's teaching were saying that God's saints are obviously those that are free from trouble. That's the catalyst behind this letter. He's wanting to remind them that no, trouble is part of the faith. Suffering is part of what it means to be a child of God. He writes this deeply personal letter. I think the most personal that he ever wrote. Essentially to explain himself. Why he was delayed. And not just that. but the, not, You'll notice as he goes through. He doesn't detail his suffering. But he says that suffering is part of the game. And he wants to make sure and demonstrate. That his authority is not because of him. It's not because of his mind. His eloquence. His expertise or anything like that. It's authority that has been given to him by God. He's reminding them that if you lose this gospel, the gospel of suffering, you lose the gospel itself. You can see Paul's heart here. It's not just that his reputation is on the the line. It's the gospel is on the line. Because if you don't understand this, he's saying to the Corinthians, you do not understand the sufferings that the gospel is everywhere known by. They weren't just misunderstanding Paul's life. They were misunderstanding the good news of Jesus Christ. Such is why he writes this letter. And such is why, if you go back to the first chapter and look at verse 8, he's wanting to sort of explain his absence. Why he was delayed. There was this great uh, sort of trouble in Asia that prevented them from doing what they wanted. From going forward with the ministry that they had previously planned. We could surmise many things that that could be. He doesn't detail it for us here. He says elsewhere that his trials were great. Notice chapter 11 verse 24. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 24 as he sort of goes through all of the things that he has been through. He says of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me. Daily the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak. Who is offended 
and I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. (laughs) Here again you can see, he's wanting to remind them, I went through all this and I'm not trying to boast in my sufferings. I'm attempting to say, I'm boasting in the glory of God that comforts me in my sufferings. Because suffering and the gospel go hand in hand. You see, you can see what he's trying to say here. All of his trials, his tribulation, his pressing beyond measure doesn't disprove his apostolic authority. It actually serves as evidence that God is at work. This is essentially what he's saying throughout this letter. Such is why he writes this. He's defending his ministry, but also sort of delineating the gospel so as to comfort the believers in their, stress, in, in their distress, the believers at Corinth. You're there in chapter 11. Just look down at the verse 11 of chapter 13. He repeats a very important word. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. That's the theme of the letter. The theme of 2 Corinthians is comfort. The comfort that comes from God. The comfort that comes from, as he says in chapter 1, the God of all comfort. In fact, it's a word that's repeated everywhere in varied forms some 29 times throughout this letter. It might surprise you, though, that in verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1, we have 10 of those instances. Almost a third of the times, or more than a third of the times that this word is mentioned, come in the first chapter alone. And each time, it means the same thing. Comfort, it's not perhaps the comfort that we might think of in our 21st century sort of way. It means a calling near. It's it's summoning one to come alongside and bring solace, bring relief, bring refreshment. And such is what Paul is here doing by this letter itself. He is coming alongside these troubled Corinthian believers and these beaten down uh, faithful ones. And he is comforting them with the truth of the gospel of Christ crucified. And such is one I want to bring you this morning. Three quick things. Three quick truths I think we see in this first chapter concerning this gospel of comfort. Notice first of all with me in verses 3 through 4. I think we see here the mercy of comfort. The mercy of comfort. Notice verse 3 again of chapter 1. Blessed be God. Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. As we noted earlier, and as we read from chapter 11, Paul had compiled a very long list of reasons why he should be able to quit on God. All of those things I've been through, I have more than enough reasons where I can say, I give up, I'm quitting, I'm I'm forgetting all of this. We think we have it bad, so to speak. We think we have it difficult. Paul would say, I have it way more difficult. (laughs) 
And in fact, that's essentially what he's doing in that chapter 11. He's reminded the Corinthians, remember all those things I go through? He's not trying to be braggadocious. He's trying to say, these are the things that I have endured for the sake of the gospel. And yet, what is persistent through it all, it's the God of all comfort. He didn't quit. He did not give up on this ministry with which the Lord had given him precisely because each time he was beaten down, each time he was rejected by some city and he had to dust off the dirt off of his shoulders, each time his ship ran aground, he was comforted by none other, as he says here, than the God of all comfort. Who, as he says here, meets us in our tribulation. I would say that this is one of the most expressive titles of God. That he is the God of all comfort. Because essentially what it is trying to convey is that this God, who is the God of all heavens, the God of all stars, the God of all galaxies, the God of places in this universe that we can't even comprehend with the human eye because it's too weak and it's not powerful enough. This God who sustains all of that comes alongside these troubling, these pressed people of this earth with compassion. As he says here. Blessed praise be this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of mercies. Suggestive that this mercy, this this compassion, this pity, it, it spills out from deep within God's bowels, so to speak. It's like it's what He's made up of. He's a father of mercy and he's made up of mercy that all of who God is, is a compassionate presence. This is his heart. This is his makeup. This is his nature. Cut God anywhere and compassion and comfort flow out of him. This is who he is. He's the father of mercies. And I would say that the fact that ours is a world of such discomfort. Is proof positive that we are desperate to know this God. We are desperate to know this God who holds comfort in his hands. That it comes from deep within himself. Because we are desperate for someone to relieve us. Desperate for someone to quell the pain. To give us a remedy for all that's wrong. We're desperate for someone to relieve us from this tribulation. The problem is. We're going to a million and one different places other than God to find it. Such as what we attempted to know throughout our series through Ecclesiastes. That this world is full of mess and misery and mayhem. And it's uncomfortable and it's fragile. And all of these things that we go to and resort to find comfort and meaning and purpose and hope and value are fragile because they are under the sun. And here Paul is saying that that's precisely the point. We need a comfort that comes from outside of us. A comfort that comes beyond us. And this comfort comes from none other than the God of all comfort. Who gives us this compassion. And two amazing things as he delineates here in verse 3. In this Promise of a savior in the provision of this presence. Notice again, as he says here, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 
So you see here that Paul's comfort is coming from this precise fact that we have a Savior who has been promised to us by this God. And we have a remedy, a solace. We have relief that is being provided because of this God. A God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. This is where Paul found his relief in all his tribulation. Notice, from first of all, from what God promises That comes from Jesus. As he says there, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God be praised for giving us Jesus. That's his prayer. That's his declaration. This is, I think, one of the most remarkable facts of the gospel itself. That God doesn't leave us in our distress. That God doesn't leave us in our, to wallow in our misery. To withstand all of the world's troubles and all of the world's trials. And all of whatever this life can throw at us. He doesn't leave us alone in that type of storm. No. What is the announcement of the gospel? Is that God's only begotten son has come to sit and to minister alongside us in our tribulation. This is the good news of the gospel that God himself, yes, the sovereign one of all creation, has come and personally condescended to our world to dispense his comfort to his children. This is what he did in the person of Jesus. This is what he is here saying, who comforts us by the the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is most remarkable to me as I was Reading and reflecting on this passage is the fact that the comfort that is derived out of Christ being promised to us comes in the most extraordinary fashion. Because notice he says, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. You see what he's saying here and throughout the rest of this book. That is precisely because Christ suffered, we are comforted. Because Christ came and bore our sin and bore the suffering that our sin deserved, that's where our comfort is found. This is Jesus, as we everywhere have talked about, the great high priest, as it says in Hebrews 2, verse 18, the one who has felt all of our sorrows, all of our infirmities, so that he is able to suffer as one to have, as we could say, as one who has been there. He's been in tribulation. He's been pressed beyond all measure. And therefore, he is able to comfort us when we too are in tribulation and pressed beyond all measure. This is Jesus, the suffering Savior, the one who was not comforted so that we, his children, could be comforted. You notice that? That the the comfort of the gospel is precisely because Jesus wasn't comforted in his hour of suffering. Jesus felt the full brunt of the wrath of the law for your sin. And he was not comforted. Which is why he declares that horrible, miserable cry from the cross. My God, my God, why do you forsake me? Because in his suffering, he was not comforted. Why? So that you and I might be. So that you and I could be comforted in our tribulation. Because he wasn't. 
The full effects of sin were poured out on him. And he was abandoned so that we would never be abandoned by the Father. He felt the Father's wrath so that we might be built up and find the Father's grace. This is the comfort of the gospel. It's a mercy that is derived of the glorious truth that we hold dear. The gospel of substitution. Jesus taking our place. He suffered And felt all of the pressing measures of sin. And was not comforted. So that we in our lives. When we feel all the pressing measures of this life. Are reminded of this God. Who comes and comforts us. In all our tribulation. The mercy of comfort. Comes because the son was not comforted. Comes because this one felt all the great horrors of the cross. From what God promises, but also in this verse, verse 3, from what God provides. The mercy of comfort comes from what God provides. Notice verse 3 again. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. As we said earlier, it's in God's nature to be merciful. To be compassionate. He's a God who loves to give of himself. That's essentially what this verse means. That he's a God of all comfort. And he loves to comfort those who are in distress. He delights in giving of himself. And giving compassion to those who are weary. And giving mercy to those who deserve something else. Notice, let me just read you these verses. These verses come from the book of Micah. The book of Micah, chapter 7. We have some incredible promises and assurances from God's word of who this God is. This God that we serve. This God that we hold dear. This God of all comfort who doesn't delight to bring swift justice on us. Who actually delights in something else. Micah, chapter 7, verse 18 Who is God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. How about that for comfort? That this God, he doesn't hold on to grudges. He doesn't retain his anger forever. Rather, he delights in mercy. He delights in giving his children what they do not deserve. And not giving them what they do deserve. Precisely because his son has borne all that they deserve. He was made sin. He was made to feel all the horrible effects of this world's wreckage and desolation. So that we might be comforted in our desolation. Precisely because all of our sins have been thrown uh, uh, over his back and cast into the depths of the sea. Such is what Paul was here finding to be his comfort in all of his distress. Is that this God had remedied all of the world's sin. This this God of all comfort, this God who delights in mercy, this is opposite of the, the popular caricature of God. 
Often I think we have this, or pop culture I would say, has this view of God that he's this grumpy, bearded, old, white man who lives in heaven who's just grumpy all the time. And he has a grudge against people who do bad things. And he wants to see them have sort of this vengeful, vindictive, this God sort of gets a a vindictive joy out of sort of giving them punishment. Giving people bad things in their life. The man upstairs, so to speak. This is not our God. This is not the God of the Bible. Why? Because he's a God of all comfort. Who loves. Who delights in dispensing mercy and comfort and compassion to his children. To those who are distressed beyond all measure. He wants to come alongside them. And in fact, he promises that he has come alongside them in his son, Jesus Christ. The one who has felt all the horrors of life for you and for me. So that we might have boundless comfort in all of our sufferings. He is the God of all comfort. And that is the great mercy of comfort. That he himself comforts us in our distress. But notice number two here in this passage, the ministry of comfort. And I have to move. (laughs) The ministry of comfort. Notice verse three again. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation." You get a sense exactly of what Paul is trying to convey in these verses. He's eager for them to know that not just his gospel was true, but that they could know that his present ordeals, his present sufferings aren't uh, sort of out of the ordinary. But I think what is most fascinating to me is how Paul goes about this. Because as we noted from verses 8 through 16 of this chapter and then through chapter 11. He goes about by trying to uh, say and convey just what we just noted about Jesus. That he was discomforted. That he was in great tribulation. He's very open about that in this letter. About the ordeals that he suffers in his body. Go with me to chapter 4 verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, confesses, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of God or of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. They know precisely what is going on. That they are distressed because their Lord suffered. They are suffering because their Lord himself came and suffered for them. And so here you can see Paul's heart. This did not disqualify him in any way. This is precisely the ministry that he was called to. And enduring suffering. He was sharing in what Christ did for him and for the church. You see here. The ministry of comfort. 
is primarily carried out by those who see themselves as fellow sufferers. As those who share in themselves, in their own bodies, in their own lives, in the sufferings and tribulations of this present life. There are no categories here. There are no former sufferers and current sufferers. There are no graduates from this way of life. We are all, every single one of us here this morning, broken in one degree or another, in one way or another. We are broken people. That's what church is. Broken people helping other broken people cope with their brokenness. By pointing to a savior who is broken for them. That's what church is. That's what binds it together. That's what keeps it united. That we all share in the sufferings of Christ. The comfort we give is the comfort of a sufferer to a sufferer. By pointing to a suffering savior. That's what Christ, Paul here was doing. We have been, uh, we have been made to, to suffer that we may experience the comfort of God. That you, by our comfort, or even, yes, by our distress, might be comforted in that. Such is what he means by he, when he says in verse 6, that you may find it for either your consolation or your salvation. Either way, we've been called to declare uh, the, the ministry of the suffering Savior in the midst of our present distress. And this doesn't, this ought not to scare us. The ministry of comfort doesn't mean you have to come up with some really profound, wise, philosophical thing for someone to make sense of their suffering. You know the one thing that Job's friends got right? The one thing that they did right throughout all of their time, if you read Job, Job's friends are not very good friends because they keep telling him that the suffering that he's experiencing is, is obviously something that he did wrong, something that he has to figure out and pay God back. It doesn't start out that way though. In Job 2 verse 17, it says that they sat in silence for seven days, not saying a word, just sitting with one who was broken. <laughs> You don't always have to say some profound thing. The ministry of comfort is often just the presence of people who know your suffering. Who have felt your suffering too, perhaps. It's the one thing they did get right. <laughs> we participate in the ministry of comfort when we come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ with the message of the sufferings of Christ. This is Paul here. He's coming alongside a troubled church. And reminding them of one thing. Christ crucified. Christ for you. Christ suffering in your stead. On your behalf. There's no other word that is more profound than that. There's no other message that you need to give. There's no sort of super spiritual insight or wisdom that you need to figure out. It's Christ for you, coming from one who is a fellow sharer, as he says here, as one who has shared in the sufferings that abounded in Christ. Think about that in your own life. How are you right now being pressed beyond measure? Feeling trouble on every side. This is God writing the story through which you may be able to comfort others. 
Your present tribulation is your testimony of comfort. I think about this in my own life. Many of you may know I've been open about this. The way in which my mom suffered several years ago now. It's hard to believe that it's been several years ago. The great torrent of depression that racked her soul and her mind and her body. As I watched my mom not be my mom. Because she was so riddled with darkness. I know for sure. Through a roundabout way. What that has done for my own faith. And for the faith of my family. It was a story that God was writing through that great and deep tribulation. I cannot even recall all, I can't even, or I should say even recount all of the tears that I cried during those moments, during those hours of great weakness. It was as if I was crying my eyes dry. And it was the God of all comfort writing the story through which I might be able to comfort others. Not because I'm mighty, not because I'm strong, not because I'm able to withstand, not even because my family is so faithful. It's because he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all tribulation. We point to him. We point to that God. We point to that type of a savior who comes alongside troubled people and dispenses compassion to them in the midst of their trouble. I know for sure that one of the byproducts of that, of that whole uh, horrible event, is the boundless comfort I am able to share. Of a God who meets us in tribulation. How is God using your present moment for that same purpose? The mercy of comfort. The ministry of comfort. Lastly, I must hasten. The mandate of comfort. The mandate of comfort. Notice verse 7 again. And our hope of you is steadfast. Knowing... That as ye are partakers of the suffering, so shall ye be also of the consolation. Second Corinthians is a letter of many twists and turns. Of course, though, as we've noted, the, the prevailing theme is comfort in affliction. And it proceeds out of the fact that this boundless tribulation that we have in this life cannot exceed the boundless comfort that we have in Christ. Go back to verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound, as they multiply in this present life, so our comfort, our consolation, also abounds and multiplies. It exceeds measuring because of Christ. Nothing can outgive God. Not even this life that is so full of wreckage can outgive this God who was so full of mercy. He cannot be outdone. This is Paul's testimony, his interpretation of his present tribulation was the fact that he had a mandate to minister comfort, regardless if that meant that his, his present one was one that was full of trouble or full of rejoicing. Regardless, others could see him and see the comfort of God. 
That's why he says in chapter 4 that he was going to glory in that. Glory in infirmities so that Christ's glory may be seen. God's power may be seen. Because when I am weak, he is strong. Therefore, I'm going to all the more gladly boast in my weakness. This is what the, where the church finds its purpose. Notice again, chapter 13, those closing words of this wonderful letter. Finally, brethren, verse 11 of chapter 13, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Here. All that the church is known for is derived out of the comfort the church receives and the church gives. Which is to say this, that the church of God, a church which is made up, comprised of sinners, is precisely to be a house of comfort. That's what we are. The church is a place for those who are troubled, a place where the wearied can find rest, where a place where those who are fretted and worried are met with compassion, are met with the certainty of God's good news, a place where the suffering can find relief and hope, precisely because we have a God of all comfort who meets us in our tribulation. Too often... I feel as though the church and the people in it are the last place broken people think of going when their lives are shattering. They don't want to go to the church. Too much guilt there. Too much discomfort. Too much shame. Who's, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? What are they going to think about how my life has gone off the rails? What are they going to think of how I'm pressed and I'm, I'm so faithless? The church is a place for those who are discomforted to be reminded of the God of all comfort. We have a mandate, a mandate to be about the ministry of comfort. Now, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean to say that we are making sinners comfortable in their sin. No, we are coming alongside those who are comforted and comforting them with a precise message. There is one who has been made sin for them. That's the only comfort that lasts. Trying to take away pain with more things that are under the sun will not last. It'll fail. It'll, it is fragile. It is fickle. The comfort that lasts, that persists throughout all of life is the comfort of God being made sin in the sinner's stead. Of dying with no comfort to be had. Of dying being abandoned by the Father. And there is unlimited comfort in this, this precise message. Such is what the church ought to be known for. We ought to be known for preaching and declaring with all boldness and loudness. With all fervency. The gospel of comfort. Of the God who was discomforted for his children's relief. Do you know this God? Do you know this Savior? Do you know this good news? 
This good news of Jesus. The one who is discomforted for you. Let us pray.